Hello, Clear Skies Ahead listeners. This is Kelly Savoy, and I'm hoping you can take a moment of your time to rate and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. We have produced over 60 episodes, and you can help us reach even more individuals that will benefit from the diverse experiences shared by our guests. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this new episode. Welcome to the American Meteorological Society's podcast series, Clear Skies Ahead, conversations about careers in meteorology and beyond. I'm Kelly Savoy, and I'm here with Emma Collins, and we'll be your hosts. We're excited to give you the opportunity to step into the shoes of an expert working in weather, water, and climate sciences. We're happy to introduce today's guest, Matthew Brown, a postdoctoral fellow at the National Severe Storms Laboratory, NSSL, in Norman, Oklahoma. Welcome, Matt. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Matt, could you tell us a little bit about what sparked your interest in atmospheric science and how it influenced your educational path? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so like a lot of people in meteorology, you know, I was always fascinated with, you know, weather and storms and tornadoes as a kid. Um, I still have uh, some boxes somewhere in my apartment of, uh, you know, tornado videos and books that that I had um, uh, and like pictures drawn of like me wanting to be a storm chaser when I grew up. So I was always fascinated with weather. Um, especially severe weather. Uh, but then actually, I kind of diverted away from that for a little while um, into like high school when I started getting jobs. I actually got really interested uh, in hospitality. I worked in uh, a restaurant, I worked in a bakery, and I worked uh, in a cafe for a while, and I got really sucked into that side of things. So I actually, I always have fun telling people this story and seeing the reaction. I actually uh, went to undergrad for hospitality management um, at Penn State uh, University. And I did that for an entire year. And during that first year, I decided to take a, um, oh gosh, what's it called? A gen ed, uh, a gen ed, like a non-major class in meteorology. Um, Cause I knew I liked weather. It's just had been a long time since I really did anything weather related. And I sort of fell back in love with, uh, with the weather side of things um, and my, professor and TA of that class had a conversation with me or sat down with me about halfway through that semester and said, have you considered doing meteorology as your profession? And I had some conversations back and forth and ended up switching into the major. And uh, three degrees later, the rest is history. So, Well, you certainly picked the best school to switch to a meteorology major. <laughs> the funny thing is I had no idea of the reputation of Penn State's meteorology program, I was like, oh, hey, this school has this, ha- you know, this school has meteorology. And then I, later on, a couple, you know, a year or two into the program, I was like, oh, they they have a program. <laughs> like it's, yeah, yeah. I, it was very fortunate. So did you grow up in Pennsylvania or did you actually relocate to go to school there? I Yeah, I grew up in like South Central Pennsylvania in Lancaster County. Um, so sort of in the heart of Amish country. And actually, if you look at, uh, I mean, this is like where the weather, weather weenie comes through, but like, if you look at where like tornadoes happen in, uh, in Pennsylvania, it's either, uh, far West, uh, Pennsylvania or South Central Pennsylvania. So I'm in one of the hot spots. I remember as a kid, there was a, a town about 10, 15 minutes North of us that got 
leveled by an EF3 tornado, um, which is, uh, you know, relatively uncommon for that strength yeah, of a tornado to hit Pennsylvania. That. So that left a, that left a impression on me for sure. Have you ever witnessed a tornado yourself when you were a kid growing up or is it just hearing the stories from the surrounding towns? In Pennsylvania itself, no, I haven't. It's just been seeing things around. I mean, I remember a lot of tornado warnings. Of course, I was the kind of kid who like, you know, when storms were coming through and everyone else was like, oh, let's get inside. I'm like, let's go outside. Um, <laughs> I'm sure your parents love that. So, oh, for sure. With, you know, with lightning and, you know, t- tornado sirens going off on the weather channel, like having the little kid run outside. But yeah, uh, but I, I didn't see any tornadoes. I didn't see any tornadoes until I left Pennsylvania. So what opportunities did you pursue inside and outside of school that you knew would be beneficial to securing a job in your profession? Oh my God, I could go on for a very long time because I'm one of those people who uh, struggles to say no to things. So that's, this is a very long list. But I like, I guess starting with like undergrad, um, you know, I took on a lot of, or took on a lot of various like leadership roles in clubs, some meteorology uh, related and some not. Um, and then like later in, in undergrad, um, I had a, uh, you know, research or RU experience through the, um, it's through NCASM, which is a interdisciplinary um, Center for Atmospheric Science Research that's based in ha- out of Howard University. Um, and I did, I participated in their, it's the USIP program. It's undergraduate student internship programs. So that was sort of like the first uh, foundational like research experience that I got. Um got to take a part of. And then my senior year, I did an air quality forecasting internship with one of the professors at Penn State. Um, so between those two things, I got to really bulk up my you know research skills and my writing and communication um, skills because the air quality uh, involved like writing, um, writing sort of like synopsis of air quality forecasts to release to the public. Uh, so communication was really important with that. And then as I got into uh, grad school, I really got involved with, uh, you know, recruitment for uh, my grad school, which was Texas A&M University, um, and also being involved with planning like the prospective visits. Because I know for me, when I visited grad schools um, in my senior year, uh, the prospective visits were like one of the hugest factors in, in me deciding where I wanted to go for grad school. So I really wanted to be a part of that experience for other students. Um, and then as I've sort of grown as an early career professional, I've started to get involved in more uh, professional things. Um, I'm involved with AMS uh, Braid. I'm not sure if you've had anyone from Braid on, but it's the Board for Representation, Accessibility, Inclusivity, and Diversity. Um, as well as uh, they're sort of an embedded group called Coriolis, which is the LGBTQ plus uh, affinity group within AMS Braid. Um, and I've got got the chance to go on several field campaigns as well uh, in the last few years. So that's kind of helped build a more collaborative network uh, of, uh, of scientists and um, get out in the field and help train some of the, the younger scientists um, so, uh, and then actually just recently I got back 
just a week or two ago from AMS uh, Early Career Leadership Academy uh, out in Phoenix, uh, which was a, a really great opportunity. Yeah, I was I was there too at the broadcast yeah. conference and oh and no way yeah oh, we I know I, I yeah. sorry I didn't see you but um, that venue was really pretty nice. Uh, oh, it was <laughs> I, as we were driving up, it just kept on going on and on. I was like, oh, it's like a it's like a city. <laughs> like, yeah, it was it was lovely. It was a really good good time. So it sounds like uh, you were very busy during your your undergraduate and graduate years. And (laughs) I know that your PhD research was on the multi-scale evolution of Southeast U.S. storms and their environments. Could you tell us and our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of fell in love with, well, I've always loved storms, but I specifically became fascinated with Southeast storms because uh, the more that I learned, the more I realized how much they sort of deviate from our typical model of severe convection. Um, so for instance, like when you think about, when you think about like severe storms, you think about, you know, uh, the prototypical like Great Plains tornadoes, they're happening in these big, massive, like supercell storms. Uh, they're happening in sort of the mid to late spring, uh, a lot of times um, in the l- late afternoon or early evening. Uh, and they're happening in, in environments that have a lot of like juice to them or instability or you talk about cape um uh and and a lot of wind shear as well but in the southeast you know you still have those kind of storms but a great deal of those storms for instance happen in environments with uh sort of less juiciness or less instability um and they can happen in sort of what we consider off months like cool season fall winter months um a lot of those storms can happen in the nighttime and just a lot of other things like, you know, the Great Plains has doesn't have very many uh, hills or topography, um, hence why I can see storms 100 miles away on a clear day in Oklahoma or Texas. Um, you know, but the southeast is, has very complex terrain. And when you have these storms that are happening at night or they're moving extremely fast, um, there's a lot of complexities that make it really hard to track these storms. And then there's uh, sort of a whole socioeconomic side as well. Um, you know, there are a lot of portions of the Southeast have uh, increased poverty rates or there are a lot of disparities or inequities when it comes to uh, housing standards. Um, and a lot of, uh, a lot of areas, uh, you know, don't have direct access to storm shelters. Um, so even when storms are approaching, there might not be a, a feasible option for people to find uh, shelter in time. So, if you take all the physical, the physical attributes and all these socioeconomic vulnerabilities, it really puts a sort of a bullseye on on the back of the southeast, and it uh, really inspired me to you know to dive into dive into those storms and see if I could you know improve our physical understanding or predictability uh, of some of these storms. Yeah, and I just um, I can't remember where the storm was, but someone was telling me about, you know, a place where people were taking shelter. Like it was like a, you know, one of those big box stores, whatever, that just kind of collapsed. So mm-hmm. I guess there there has to be some more research on, um, I don't know, the better architecture for, for these safe places because that was, that was pretty awful. Oh, yeah. There's, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, engineers um, that I know who are sort of on, on the case with uh, trying to, to figure out 
how you know what structures are more resistant to those those kind of uh those kind of winds and yeah you know when like i said when there are those disparities in in housing um you know structures or building standards it makes it really difficult to to serve uh ensure that the public is protected from these high impact events and all that has really nicely set the stage for my current postdoc work, which looks at uh, the factors contributing to development of rotation in quasi-linear convective systems, or QLCSs, which are very common in the Southeast, uh, particularly during the evening hours. Uh, and this pairs with some of the deployments for the Perils field campaign that I mentioned about. And I'm really hoping to, you know, improve our understanding of the physical processes that, that contribute to this rotation and sort of update and modernize our forecasting paradigm for this rotation. So how did you end up where you are today at NOAA's National Severe Storms Laboratory? Yeah, so it was came with a, a lot of research and a lot of emails. Um, you know, sort of uh, in the last year of my last year of my uh, PhD program, I started doing a lot of research about you know different postdocs that there are in the atmospheric sciences, um, you know, because there's sort of two main, like, flavors of postdocs, I guess you could say. Um, there are postdocs that are, like, directly hosted by an institution, like, okay, I'm going to go do a postdoc at this university with this specific professor who has money for a postdoc. Uh, but then there are also sort of these, like, I don't know if you call them, like, third-party postdocs, where you apply to a separate organization um, that then provides money to to an organization or lab um, for a postdoc. So for instance, uh, my postdoc is through the National Research Council or NRC. Um, I have friends who applied to the ASP, um, uh, which is a, a prestigious postdoc out at NCAR. Um, NSF has their own sort of postdocs called AGSPRF. Um, that's the Atmospheric and Geographic Sciences. Um, and there's some other ones. So I did a lot of research. And then I sort of... <laughs> cold emailed a couple of professors um, or a couple of researchers at NSSL and just said, hey, you don't know me and I don't know you, but I've read your papers um, and this is the stuff I'm working on. And, you know, uh, just sort of asking them, like, what are you working on? And, you know, would you have a use for uh, a postdoc if I applied for, for one of these? Um, and they were fortunately very... Uh, very welcoming and hospitable to, uh, to, to having those conversations and, or pointing me in the direction of people, people that, that I should talk to. Um, and then I applied for a couple postdocs and, and a couple uh, faculty positions as well. Uh, and then I got, uh, several no's, which if you're in academia, you just get used to. Uh, and then fortunately got a yes at the institution that I'm at now. That's great. And good for you for just putting yourself out there. Yeah, I love the initiative. Yeah. It's taken time to build, to build up the, I don't know if it's uh, confidence or just stubbornness to, to just put it out there and whatever happens, happens. So. And thanks for explaining the postdoctoral, you know, the differences, because I've always wondered that. Because I'm just like, okay, so where does this person, like, do they really work at the university? Because it seems like they're, they have the university as in their title, but then they also have like an outside organization that always confused me. So mm -hmm. um, you explained that well, thanks. Yeah, it's a complicated web. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of moving pieces. So um, this is a good segue. 
Could you walk us through a typical day on the job as a postdoctoral fellow and let us know about some of the research you're conducting at NSSL? Yeah, absolutely. So in general, I would say that, um, you know, the life of a postdoc is similar in a lot of ways to the life of, P- of a PhD student. Um, you know, I have a very flexible schedule, um, which is good and bad because it means that I need to hold myself to a schedule, uh, uh, considering that no one's, ex- you know, no one's checking when I clock in or clock out. Well, I don't even clock in or clock out. I just show up. So, uh, but, you know, I have a flexible schedule. Uh, you know, I go in, um, I'm sort of in the, I guess one difference from the life of like a master's or a PhD student is I'm really in completely in the driver's seat of my research in terms of uh, what things I want to go after, how I want to go after them and structure like science experiments and things like that. Um, but in general, like I go in, you know, I try to spend some time every day, uh, at least, uh, you know, reading, reading through papers. I usually keep an eye. Uh, I'm always checking the early online releases for AMS journals to see what new papers, uh, what new papers come out. So I can sort of kind of mark down like, okay, I need to take a look at this. I need to take a look at this. Um, I do quite a bit of coding, um, uh, for for my particular research, because I do a lot of numerical modeling, um, so a lot of coding and making figures. And I currently, I'm writing uh, numerous manuscripts. So uh, hence why writing has become such an important part of my life. Um, but I also spend a lot of the day having just sort of conversations with colleagues, whether it's uh, in in sort of area of cubicles that I'm in or, or or down the hall. It's one of the really nice things about working in the National Weather Center um, at OU because there's a lot of expertise all jam-packed into the same place. Um, and really some of the, the best ideas I've had during my postdoc have come from talking to other postdocs and scientists. Um, and in addition to that, there's a, there's a group of us who, a uh, group of sort of undergrad, grad students, postdocs, research scientists, um, that, uh, that meet on a weekly basis. Um, and we all have sort of similar interests in severe weather or severe local storms. And we meet to talk about, you know, whether it's r- recent weather events, um, you know, Norman, <laughs> Norman this year, uh, has experienced a, quite a bit of interesting weather. I've had, I think at least three massive supercells go right directly over my apartment, which is three too many. Oh my gosh. So, gosh. Yeah. And we've, uh, there are actually some grad students in our group that were impacted by a, a, a tornado that happened this past February. So we have, we've had a lot to talk about. Um, but we've talked about that. We talk about recent papers. Um, and we also do group projects from time to time where we can all collaborate on a shared idea. Um, this summer or this spring and summer as well, I've gotten uh, to be out in the field a lot, helping with, um, some field campaign operations. Um, so last year and this year I was involved with the, the perils field campaign, which is the, let's test my acronym knowledge. It's the propagation, evolution and rotation in linear storms field campaign. Nice. Ooh, that's, a, that's a mouthful. <laughs> right. Meteorology. We love our acronyms. So and then I just got back a little bit ago from uh, operations with Taurus, which is targeted observations of rotation um, using, I think it's unmanned uh, vehicles or like UAVs and things like that in, in supercells. Wow, yeah, that's that sounds a lot. cool. That's been a lot of fun, too. So I've gotten to help uh, lead some of the, specifically I've helped lead some of the LIDAR and radio sound operations for that. 
And then, um, you know, I'm also very passionate about STEM teaching. Um, and I taught uh, a couple classes, taught a couple classes and took some courses in, in STEM uh, teaching practices in grad school. So I sort of uh, put the bug in the ear of some of the OU professors for like, Hey, if you're out uh, out for any period of time on, you know, giving a talk or at a conference, like I'll fill in lecturing for your classes. So I've gotten to to uh, sort of guest lecture a couple um, uh, upper level undergrad classes both last year and this year. So uh, a little a little bit of every everything. Nice. So it, it sounds like most of your work takes place in the office. Do you get to work from home at all or do you just prefer to go in? It's it's better for your research and, and your job. It sort of depends. I mean, definitely uh, since COVID, the, you know, the favorability or the, um, or the feasibility of doing work from home uh, is definitely better than it used to be. Like it's, it's the, I can work from home if I, if I like. For me, it really just depends on sort of what, um, what step in the research process I'm in. You know, if I'm like, uh, if I'm making a lot of figures and doing a lot of analysis, I tend to like to be in my office because I have a nice huge desktop where I can pull up a lot of things and I can, you know, go ask someone to come over and look at something and get their opinion on, on stuff. Um, but if I'm doing writing, I like to, I like to either be at home or in a cafe around here or somewhere with coffee, somewhere with plenty of espresso. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's nice that it's flexible like that for you. Oh yeah. It, it's, that's the one, uh, one of the really nice benefits uh, of being a postdoc that, uh, again, I'm not sort of tied to a dis- distinct schedule, you know, as long as the the work and the research progresses, that's all that really matters. So you may not have a distinct schedule, but you certainly stay busy. I, <laughs> I wonder when you sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, like I said, I have trouble saying uh, no to things, which is, is, it keeps me on my feet, but it, but it also keeps me on my feet. I mean, it's always, I'm always uh, doing doing something. But uh, I, you know, a lot of people who went through a postdoc will be like, now's the time to do those things. And you're, you're young and you have energy and... And time. And, and time. So, so, and I know it's flexible, but would you say that you still work like maybe the, the normal 40-hour work week or is it more than that? Like, do you put in more overtime? I would say, I would say now it's probably around that 40 hour work week. I know if you would have asked me that question at the end of my PhD, it would have been <laughs> much more than much more than 40. Um, but uh, that, that and that's something that I've just gotten better with as time has gone on in terms of trying to hold myself to a schedule. You know, I had a reputation amongst grad students uh, in in grad school as sort of letting my work dictate my schedule, but I've tried to switch that. Um, or maybe I should say my boyfriend has forced me to switch that <laughs> to my my uh, schedule or, or yeah my schedule determining determining work instead of the other way around. So right because you need you need downtime. You have to have downtime. Oh yeah, and like the 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 ideas don't the science ideas don't flow as well if I'm sleep deprived mm-hmm. <laughs> and hungry or under caffeinated. So, well, you seem to be excited about all of the things, but I am wondering what are some of the aspects of your job that you're specifically excited about or is it just all of the above? I yeah, I mean sometimes yeah, I feel like 
uh, I can feel like a excited puppy where I'm just like, Oh my goodness, everything is so great. Um, but I guess like if I really had to like narrow things down, um, you know, it's nice to just be in this, this time in my career where I can like really just focus on like research and collaborating with people, you know, in grad school, um, grad school, you have, you know, classes to worry about and you're worried about the timeline of your dissertation and defense and, uh, and things like that. And then on the flip side, you know, once you get into a career, especially if you're in faculty role, you know, there's, uh, there's sort of organizational things that you, you know, have to worry about, like with meetings and serving on committees, uh, and you have to worry about planning courses and, and having office hours and things like that. So right now I can be like very laser focused on, on pursuing research. Um, and like I said, the, it's really nice that I have sort of the flexibility and the freedom to pursue the research ideas that, that interest me. Um, Especially uh, as, um, you know, in a place like National Weather Center where I have somewhat uh, unlimited, you know, computing resources, I'm surrounded by a lot of different people with different uh, expertise and, and backgrounds, uh, so I can get a lot of perspectives. Um, uh, but then also, I would say, like I said, still being uh, in the vicinity of, of a university where I can still teach and get those educational um, experiences as well. So Yeah, it sounds very varied. So that's that's always good. You know, you're not mm-hmm. doing the same thing every day. Yeah. And it differs, like I said, depending on depending on the kind of postdoc. Like some people I, I know some people have postdocs that more strictly a research lab that's not tied to a university. So, you know, in, in that instance, you might have to rely more on some of the scientific endeavors and not as much the, the teaching, but I've been fortunate to, to get in the classroom again. So on the flip side, what are some of the personal challenges you've faced working in the field? Yeah, absolutely. This is, this is when I uh, drag over the proverbial soapbox and get up <laughs> on it. I got a reputation at the Early Career Leadership Academy as kind of uh, carrying the banner for the the life of a postdoc, um, you know, because uh, for all the for all the you know exciting aspects and uh, of being a postdoc, it's also a very precarious position to be in. Um, one of my friends, who's also a postdoc, sent me uh, an, an op-ed a week or two ago, and I think they describe postdocs as sort of the invisible workforce mm. in academia. Um, because, you know, everyone talks about, um, or there's, you know, it's a lot of discussion about, um, you know, undergraduates and grad school experiences and life in academia as a faculty, but you don't really hear people talk about postdocs. Um, even like with what you were mentioning, Kelly, about not knowing how postdocs really work, no one tells you. <laughs> no one really tells you. Um, I had to do a lot of sort of uh, the, the number of people towards the end of my PhD that I was like, what do you know about what do you know about postdocs? Like, tell me about, did you do a postdoc? Should I do a postdoc? Do I need a postdoc? Um, and even coming into a postdoc, there's not uh, clear, like, this is how you do a postdoc. And I mean, partially that's that's because you're supposed to be, you know, sort of solidifying your, like, skill set and identity as a scientist. Um, but it also can make things difficult, uh, you know, difficult to navigate. Um 
one thing that a lot of people might not know about PostX2 is, you know, even though you're, you're getting more collaborators and you're beefing up your resume with, you know, publications and presentations, not many postdocs sort of like naturally lead into a job at that given organization. Right. It's sort of a it's sort of agreed upon that like, hey, you're coming in. We're going, you know, uh, you'll do research for us. We'll help you uh, again, sort of um, become like a more more established uh, more established scientist. But there's not necessarily a guaranteed position at the end of this. So you kind of go into it knowing that two to three years down the road, you're going to be back in the situation where you're looking for jobs um, and you might have to, you know, you might have to move again. Um, And, uh, you know, so that puts a lot of stress on postdocs, especially postdocs with significant others. Um, You know, I've had to, I had to sell my boyfriend on the, okay, like we're going to move from Texas to Oklahoma and then, maybe somewhere else and I can't tell you where that place is going to be but <laughs> but like I promise like <laughs> I'll make it worthwhile like so it, it's a little bit of a you're, you're sort of in this nebulous transient uh transient position mm-hmm. um you know and like with postdocs like I I am definitely making more money than I did in grad school um but uh I'm not making as much money as I would as I would if you know I got a faculty role or I was a research scientist or went into the private sector or something like that. Um, And, you know, even when it comes to like looking for funding um, and you hit the nail on the head earlier, Kelly, that, uh, you know, a lot of postdocs are, don't have direct affiliation with a lab or a university. It's sort of like, like for me, I work at a, a federal lab, but I work at a federal lab as sponsored by a third party organization. So I'm not, I'm not technically a federal employee. I still, you know, I access, I access the lab. I have a federal ID, but I'm not a federal employee. So I can't write grant proposals. Uh, I can't write be a lead on grant proposals because there's no actual affiliation to point that money towards if I got the grant. Um, so you're kind of in this precarious position where you don't, uh, you know, you're working for a lot of people, but you don't belong to any specific entity. And because of that, I mean, so I have another question. What about like vac- paid vacation time, sick time, medical insurance. Do you get any of that covered since you're not like specifically at one of those institutions? Yeah. So that, that's where, um, so for me, uh, with my postdoc, I, I pay for, um, or I pay for insurance through my, uh, through my postdoc. Um, so it's not, again, it's not directly, uh, provided by the organization doing your research with, but the, the third party. Um, and then like when it comes with vacation, then, you know, uh, different people do it differently. I mean, for us, uh, you know, usually put in uh, sort of a request with that third party organization that, you know, Hey, I want to go home for a few weeks or, or something like that. And that, that'll uh, get approved, um, it, you know, as long as you're not taking a ton of vacations, but uh, right. yeah, it's, <laughs> There is there is flexibility with that for sure, um, but again, it's the whole the whole notion of uh, knowing that you know the insurance you have you have then 
is not going to be there in two or three years. Um, so, you know, th- there's more on the line uh, for finding a job than just the job. There's also, okay, I need to not not have insurance mm-hmm. or I need to, you know. So, again, it's, it, I, it's sort of this very... Uh, transient. I think I told one of my friends that like right now I feel as self-assured as I ever have as a scientist and probably as vulnerable as I've ever felt in a professional sense, because I don't, there's not a guarantee of where I'm going to be in a year. Yeah. And so do they give you notice? Like, do you have enough notice? Like it, would they tell you if your money or your grant or whatever it is is extended, like in advance, that you can work longer there, or will they tell? Or will they give you enough time? Like, or do they just say a month out? Sorry, uh, <laughs> yeah. fundings. Find a new house. Your fundings like your fundings done. Like, well, <laughs> yeah, dried up. No, I, the good thing. A, a lot of postdoc positions uh, have a pretty set. Um, tenure the, that they'll say like, okay, your funding runs for two years ending at the end of this fiscal year, this calendar year. Um, and, you know, there are some instances where they can, uh, where they can uh, extend or, or put together extra funds to sort of extend you if you're trying to find employment beyond the postdoc. But I mean, they're, they're relatively transparent with when, uh, with when things end. It's just, the the reality of there is a firm <laughs> there usually is a somewhat firm firm end date so it doesn't sneak up on you but it's always in the back of your mind right so you kind of painted this really interesting picture where at work it sounds like you do have a lot of areas where you collaborate and you talk and you're with other people and you're part of a team but you're also kind of in this middle ground it seems where you're almost kind of like a a, a rogue person you're just on your own do you ever find the situation (laughs) of being a postdoctoral fellow to be isolating in that aspect because you do you're not sure where you're going to be in a few years oh absolutely i've i think i've used the word isolating several times like and this is you know and i i love the place that i work at i love the people that i work with so it has nothing to do with you know their hospitality or, or or willingness to collaborate but yeah you serve kind of um, you know, when you're in grad school, you, you have this like very sure safety net of, you know, you have your advisor and they have funding and, and if they don't have funding, then you can be a TA. And there's always, uh, there's always, again, sort of some sort of safety net, uh, underneath you. And you know that, uh, you know, as long as you're, you're there, you know, there'll be, uh, there will be funding for you, but that net sort of kind of gets, taken away. I mean, again, you, you know, you have funding for a postdoc for two to three years, but, uh, there's some less guarantees, uh, you know, the sort of the, the onus of responsibility when it comes to collaborating and, uh, starting up projects and searching for other opportunities or funding, uh, gets put on you, um, as, as the postdoc. Uh, so yeah, a lot of the decisions that I might've sort of punted to my advisor now, now are on me. Um, and even the, uh, the advisor or supervisor that I have now is meant to be more of a sort of a collaborator and a colleague to talk with, not necessarily someone to, to hold my hand and guide Mm -hmm. me through the process. Um, and again, the whole notion of, uh, you know, there not being a lot of, you know, structure on the sort of broader 
field level or institutional level or however you want to call it for how to navigate a postdoc um, th- that I find myself, uh, you know, sort of having to just find the right people to ask questions and and kind of feel my way through things. You know, I think it, especially coming in, um, like still sort of towards the end of, of COVID um, and a lot of the lab uh, working completely remotely when I came in, uh, it took a good, it took a good, you know, six plus months for me to really feel like I had everything set up for me to do my research the way that, that the way that I envisioned. Um, so yeah, it, it definitely, it definitely can, can get, uh, can get isolating. So is there anything you wish you'd done differently in your career? Done differently. That's hmm. a big question. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. I was going to say there's different sort of phases of that. I like, so I guess going all, all the way back to just like sort of undergrad, early grad school, um, I, I really wish, and I've gotten a lot better at this now, but I really wish I would have sort of talked to professors and went to office hours and asked questions and approached people at conferences without feeling nervous or awkward earlier on. Because I, you know, in undergrad and early in grad school, I don't know if it's a combination of stubbornness where you're like, oh, no, I don't. I don't need, I can figure this out on my own or just nervousness of like, oh, well, this uh, this is going to be a stupid question. And was my professor going to think of me or at a conference? You're like, oh, this person's such a big name person. And like, why would they want to, you know, spend their time talking to little, you know, undergrad me. Um, (laughs) And I I realized just how much I was missing out on uh, by not having those conversations um, and, you know, I didn't really, it wasn't until like late in undergrad and into, into grad school that I started, uh, you know, that you sort of, uh, I don't know if you get reckless abandon or you just, <laughs> you just get more confident or, uh, but you're, you know, you're more willing to, to embarrass yourself and ask, and ask, ask questions and, um, and, you know, really seek understanding of things instead of, instead of, you know, staying quiet. Um, and I guess with that too, I, I wish I would have taken more classes in other disciplines. I, it's so easy to focus when you're an undergrad, especially on all meteorology classes. And then as I got into grad school and started taking classes in, uh, whether I took classes in like the stats department or the oceanography department or other, other departments, you start to see that like, Hey, we're all kind of looking at similar things with similar tools but some of the tools that y'all use aren't the same as ours but hey maybe I should like see what happens if I take that and apply it to my stuff um I think there's a lot of uh really interesting information that sort of gets lost by us being you know compartmentalized as a field and not really working with other fields um so I guess taking more classes especially stat classes I (laughs) Every time I take a new stat class, I realize how much I don't know about statistics. Um, and so it's, it's nice to have that refresher and, and, and be able to say something, be able to say more meaningful things, um, uh, about the, my science. Um, I guess in, in general too, I, I wish I would have, uh, especially earlier on, I wish I would have put, uh, more, or dedicated more time and effort into mental health and work-life balance. Um, because 
especially in like grad school, it's so easy to just focus on, on like what next, what next, what next? Um, because you're always working towards some deadline of, you know, I'm trying to get my master's, uh, de- you know, de- defense finished. I'm trying to publish this paper. I'm trying to like get ready for my, you know, qualifying or preliminary exams or th- things like that. And it's always like looking forward to the next thing. Um, and, you know, when you get focused on focused on that, you sort of uh, you either ignore or neglect your mental health side of things. Um, and, you know, it's sort of like a, you know, it's sort of like an unwatched, an unwatched, like, simmering pot. Like, and if you just keep on turning up, uh, turning up the dial uh, and, you, you know, keep on turning up the dial, you think everything is fine and you look away from it and it boils over. Um, and you know, I've had, I had that even going into, uh, the postdoc where I had some, I had some, uh, you know, mental health things sort of come out of, uh, come out of the woodwork, um, and really impact, impact my ability to, to do my scientist and, or do my science and, and even just function. And I realized that, you know, I had neglected a lot of things towards the end of my PhD. It sneaks up on you. Mm, definitely. It sneaks does. Up it really you. does. The, the, you know, and you might think like, I, I always was a kind of person that was like, you know, I can manage stress. Well, I know how to manage stress. Um, and you know, you say that, uh, or you think that until you can't. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness, like, where did this, where did this come from? Like, why am I crying in my car on the <laughs> way home from work? Like it's, it's, yeah, it sneaks up on you, and it's it's so much better if you if you prioritize those things, um, the way you would prioritize like your your science and research objectives. I guess like the last thing, uh, or one of the last main things is um, is just being more open about who I am. Um, I I identify as a, a gay man. Um, I talked about my my partner of. Oh gosh, five and a half years now. Um, but I went through a lot of undergrad and grad school thinking that I sort of had to keep my personal and professional life separate. Um, and a lot of that had to do with just a lack of having any LGBTQ plus mentors in my life. Um, I had a, uh, someone asked me for Pride Month just within the last couple of weeks. They're like, oh, who's been your like, biggest like queer mentor and I had to tell them that I didn't have one because there just was never anyone uh throughout my career path or there are very few people throughout my career path um that I really saw myself in so you know when you don't see yourself reflected in in your professors and your mentors you start to internalize this message of like oh well I need to keep my private life like completely private um so I, you know, I, I avoided conversations of my identity at conferences. I lowered my, uh, I lowered my voice at conferences. Almost any queer person in science, if you ask them, they have their like code switch voice. <laughs> they have their straight voice. Oh, wow. They know that when they feel, um, and not just, not even just science, but I'm just bringing up science because it can be very sort of uh, straight male dominated. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but 
uh, and I know a lot of uh, friends I have of color do the same thing where they know when to switch into a different uh, voice or personality or whatever in in scenario professional scenarios where they feel like you know sharing their full identity is is going to come at a detriment to their their professional development. Um, but you know I realized that that was that really was hurting my science, um, and I was denying a full part of my myself, uh, you know, and I wasn't getting to share my voice, um, share my voice and share my experiences um, and try to be, you know, a, a mentor or a, a voice for inclusivity in the field um, by, you know, hiding my my authentic self, so. Right, because you, you're going to be a mentor for someone else, you know, and you want you want to be able to be that person. Exactly, you know, like I said, if I don't, you know, if I, uh, even in the year 2023, don't see LGBTQ plus mentors in my life, like, I I need to be the one to break that cycle then, or I, I feel exactly. responsibility to be the one to break that cycle. Um, so that that's definitely something that uh, I've, come to a realization with in the last, really just in the last few years. Well, that, that's some good advice. Um, do you have any other tips for our listeners who are hoping to find employment doing scientific research? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say in general, don't be afraid to try new things, even if they're not things that you think you'd be interested in. Like, uh, for instance, the, the first two research things that I did was uh, my, so the RU through Howard University uh, was lightning research. And my air quality internship was air quality, like with, uh, you know, ozone and particulate matter forecasting. And I knew absolutely nothing about either of those topics going into those experiences. Um, nor did I ever think that those were things I'd be super interested in because I w was always focused on sort of like severe weather. Um, you know, but I went into those things with an open mind uh, and, you never know, uh, you never know what you're going to get out of those experiences. So like for me, I found out in doing lightning research that I don't overly like lightning research. Uh, but you know, it was something that I could sort of check off the list and say like, okay, I've tried that. I know that's not for me. Um, but at the same time that, that experience really beefed up a lot of my, my coding skills. Um, and my ability to sort of build an experiment based off of a data set. Um, and then with the air quality uh, research, you know, I had to do a lot of uh, writing and thinking about like, okay, how do I distill these really high level science ideas to a public uh, non-science audience? And that's paid so many dividends moving forward uh, in, you know, talking about and um, sharing my research with, with people. So, you know, w when it comes to research things like, it doesn't have to be a topic that you want to pursue later. It doesn't have to be absolutely groundbreaking research. Um, and it doesn't even have to result in a publication. Um, I've seen in the last couple of years that there's, I, I jokingly refer to it as like an academic arms race among students. <laughs> the students are, that are coming in are so smart, so smart. And like, like the computer model that I use for my, um, for my research during grad school, I didn't figure out how to use until like a year and a half into my master's. And I see high schoolers who know how to oh use gosh, it now. Ow. And I'm like, and you know, I hear them come in almost with this sort of mentality that the only way that they can, they can be a part of the field is to have, 
is to have those or, or, you know, to have publications coming out of undergrad. And don't get me wrong, all those things are great. Um, but, you know, the, the experiences you, you have in, in undergrad and grad school are about gaining those skills and, and learning. And, you know, you don't have to, you know, meet a certain threshold of, of things to, to, to be, uh, you know, worthy of grad school. Um, same thing goes with GPA. You don't have to be a perfect student to be, to, to be worthy of, or to, to flourish, uh, in grad school. Um, I guess, uh, sort of tied to what I said before, you know, don't be afraid to reach out to scientists. You find that scientists, myself included, absolutely love to talk about what they do. <laughs> they love nothing more than someone being like, hey, like, tell me about what you're working on. Um, and a lot of scientists especially love when young, younger students uh, are enthusiastic about, about that. So, you know, uh, you know, the worst thing that that can happen if you go up and talk to someone at a conference is they don't really give you the time of the day and you just move on to the next next one. And once you get sort of over that that fear of of, you know, approaching people, um, sort of the the dam breaks free and you, you all of a sudden you're like, I can talk to anyone. I'm kind of like that for better or for worse at conferences now where I'm like, I'll just go up to talk to people because I, I know they love science the way that I do and why not? Um, and I guess the last thing and probably most important thing is really like, you know, bring your full authentic self to the table in everything you do, both personal and, and science wise. Um, like I said, I spend so many years of my life uh, sort of trying to figure out what version of myself I should portray in professional settings. And it didn't, and I didn't realize until later that like, it was, it was just me all along. I should have just been myself all along. Um, and, you know, all of your experiences and your identities um, that you bring to the table are what makes you and the science that you do like uniquely you um and uh, you know especially uh, especially when you belong to you know historically marginalized groups um you know you don't know the impact that you being vocal and and proud and authentic as a scientist is going to have on the young students, uh, young students around you and, you know, having mentors that they, they see themselves reflected in. So, uh, yeah, like I said, just be, be your full authentic self and, and be proud of it. Yeah. You never know who you're inspiring. I love that. Yeah. Well, Matt, we're so grateful for everything you've told us about your career. However, before you go, we always ask our guests one last fun question at the end of the show. So, Yes. What is your favorite hobby? So my favorite hobby uh, is definitely cooking and baking. I I always say that like for all the science that I do, like cooking and baking is like my creative outlet. So um, I especially especially in am into baking. I always like a fun fact tid tidbit that I tell people. Actually, when I was younger, I used to do a lot of competitive baking. So that's wow, so cool. Interesting. <laughs> I didn't even know that existed. Yeah. So I, I, I've, I can say that I've, uh, or state claim to some of the best cakes and sticky buns in the state of Pennsylvania. <laughs> so, but I always, I have the reputation amongst my friends of like, whenever we have a get together, it's sort of like, a, okay, Matt will bring the dessert. It's like, it's always the, 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 the go-to. So that, that's, 
that's one of my favorite things to do in my free time. So yeah, we were talking about this before you joined the call, and I was like, oh, I wish it was in person because you know you could have <laughs> right? brought I us brought something you. delicious. Oh. I, I, I would have gladly. I, I love my favorite thing is like. Uh, when friends have like birthdays, I'll just send them a cryptic text of like, what are your favorite flavors? <laughs> or like, what, what are you in the mood for? And like, and just get that and like put together like their, their dream dessert and, and bring that to things. So, well, if you come to the annual meeting, I'll be expecting some really good brownies. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll have a secret stash in my backpack already, awesome. already for you. So. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Matt, and sharing your work experiences with us. Yes. Thanks so much. I, I love being on and getting to share or demystify some of the, the life of a postdoc. So. Well, that's our show for today. Please join us next time, rain or shine. Clear Skies Ahead, Conversations About Careers in Meteorology and Beyond is a podcast by the American Meteorological Society. Our show is edited by Peter Trepke. Technical direction is provided by Peter Killalay. Our theme music is composed and performed by Steve Savoy, and the show is hosted by Emma Collins and Kelly Savoy. You can learn more about the show online at www.ametsoc.org forward slash clear skies, and you can contact us at skypodcasts at ametsoc.org if you have any feedback or would like to become a future guest. 